This morning, as we celebrate the second week of Advent, I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ, our peace. Last week, we spoke about Jesus Christ, our only hope. And this week, I want us to think about Jesus Christ, our peace. This is typically the week that Bethlehem is discussed or the prophets are discussed. And we want to focus on Jesus being our peace. And we want to look at it from a prophetic standpoint. We want to look at the New Testament passage of Matthew chapter 3 and work our way through that chapter as we interface it with Isaiah chapter 40, where its roots are found. So let's begin by working our way and reading through uh, Matthew chapter 3. And as you turn there and we think about peace, peace in the Bible is more than simply the absence of fighting or the absence of war. That is included in what peace is, but it also includes the presence of justice, the presence of righteousness, and all of these things come together because of the presence of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and his work and his achievements. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. I want to stop there and look at these verses. These verses begin by saying that in, in those days, the days back there in the first century, John the Baptist came preaching. And what type of days were they? Well, if you look at chapter 2, you get a lot of insight into the type of atmosphere in which John's proclamation of repentance and the kingdom came. Prior to John coming on the scene, those days were dark days. They were characterized as you see in chapter 2 of Matthew, that, that news of the Messiah was troubling. It troubled Herod, who was the king at the time, and it troubled all Jerusalem. People were uncomfortable. They were bothered by the fact that the Messiah was coming. Many people were. Not only that, but it was a time where God was revealing to Gentiles the coming of the Messiah. When the Jewish nation, as a, in large part, were oblivious to the whole matter. We find Magi from the east of all places, near Babylon, near the place where God's people were taken into exile. Those people were coming west to worship the Messiah. They were coming because they were perceptive. God had given them a revelation. He had given them perception through, through the solar system, even, that the Messiah was coming, that 
pagan nations were more perceptive than the people of God. Not only that, but Jerusalem, the place where God dwelt, was corrupted. It had become corrupted. And uh, the rulers, uh, the people who were in charge, uh, the leaders of the land, uh, they believed that, uh, particularly Herod, believed that overturning God's promises was not only a possibility, but was a, a thing to pursue. That God's promises were unwanted. They were inconvenient. They were a threat to human autonomy. Do you ever feel that way about the promises of God, about the coming of the Messiah, about the presence of Jesus? Is Jesus' presence a threat to you? Are his promises a, an inconvenience to your autonomy? They were to Herod, they were to Jerusalem in large part in that day. It was a time in those days when John came preaching, it was a time where murdering people, even infants in this case, to secure that autonomy was okay. And it's also a time where God's people were unwelcome. You see Joseph and Mary on the run. You see the Magi even turned around and on the run, so to speak, because Herod was on the move to establish his kingdom and to rid Jerusalem of any mention of any other king. Do you ever feel that way? How dare God exert and assert his authority and his rule over my life in particular areas? Do you ever feel that, that you want to be Lord in certain aspects and certain places in your life and you don't want God's hands on that particular area? Well, whatever it is, you and I can never experience the peace of Jesus Christ the way we were meant to when we try to hold on to idols in our life, places where we don't want God's intrusive kingdom coming, and coming to bless, coming to prosper our lives spiritually and in other ways as well. Well, in this particular uh, uh, context, God, John came preaching, and he was preaching a, it says, he was preaching and he was telling people to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom had come near. At hand means it's, it's come. It's here. When, when Jesus was about to be crucified, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said of, of Judas, my betrayer, is at hand. He was right there. When the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it means it's come. It's right here. And he was preaching repentance. Repentance is a word that means simply to change your mind. You know this. It means to, as, as Paul said, it means to turn to God, to turn away from idols, and to turn with the, with the goal of serving the true and the living God and waiting for his son, Jesus Christ. 
serving him. Heaven's reign had come. And, and the reign of God, the, the, the kingdom of God, means the reign, the rule, the government of God. We, we talked about this uh, last time when we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, that it says of Jesus that of his, of his kingdom and of his um, dominion, there is, no, there is no stopping him. His kingdom and his government, uh, it says in Isaiah 9, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And, um, and it says, from this time forth and forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And so when Jesus came, his kingdom came and his kingdom has been marching on ever since. His kingdom has never slowed down ever since he was incarnate. His kingdom has been marching forward. And that his kingdom has to do with his reign. It has to do with, with God coming to, to be reconciled. Him coming to redeem, to release the captives, to set you free from sin and to renew you again in his love, to renew his character in your life. And, and not only that, but to commission you, to commission you out into this world with that message. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, that message of peace, that message of freedom, of liberty in Jesus Christ. In order that the earth might be filled, that's his objective, the earth might be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. You see Isaiah talking about that in chapter 11 and that because of that knowledge of God's glory, he says, they shall not hurt nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Well, that holy mountain back then was Jerusalem, but that holy mountain has grown. As the prophet, as the prophet Daniel talks about this stone that's going to it's going to interrupt the kingdom of men, and it's going to grow into a huge mountain that fills the entire earth. As Jesus spoke to the woman of, at the well, he says, I tell you the truth, it's not on this mountain or in Jerusalem will they'll worship, but they'll worship. His intent was, this, his, 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 his implication is that they will worship wherever they are. The whole earth shall be filled with this knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. And John uh, here is, uh, it says in, in Matthew chapter 3 that uh, John's ministry was a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah had said. And we see uh, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. If you turn there, Isaiah chapter 40, you see what's behind the ministry of of John and the message that John came to bring. And Isaiah chapter 40 begins with comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. You know, when God says something, it's enough said. We used to have a statement, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Well, when, when, when God speaks, E.F. Hutton listens, um, so to speak. And, but when God repeats himself, he's really driving the point home. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak 
tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is saying that the punishment is enough. And he's speaking in the context of the Babylonian exile. And he's saying that comfort, comfort is the word that he wants to give to his people. Tenderness is the word. That the warfare is ended. Peace has come. Welfare has come. Welfare. Well-being. Seek the welfare. Remember how Jeremiah said, seek the welfare of the city. The welfare, the warfare is the contrasted here with warfare. It's ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. And you see that this ministry of John the Baptist, this is the background of it, is that God sent John on the scene because God is up to comforting his people. It's a divinely initiated comfort, tenderness, peace, pardon. And so therefore John preaches, repent, humble yourselves. The king has come, and he's come to bring pardon. He's come to bring peace. He's come to bring comfort. He's come to bring tenderness. God is bringing these blessings, and he's saying, John is saying, don't miss out on these things. Uh, don't stand in God's way with a failure to confess sin. Don't get in God's way of blessing you by failing to humble yourself, by trying to assert your pride. Don't do that. That gets in the way of peace coming your way. God is bringing these blessings. Don't fight against him. Don't oppose him by failing to repent, by failing to confess sin, by holding on to your pretended autonomy. Look back at, keep your finger in Isaiah 40. We'll be returning there, but look back at Matthew uh, chapter uh, 3. And uh, it says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And that's saying, move out of his way. Give him a straight path into your heart and into your life through repentance, through compliance with him. Uh, look back at Isaiah chapter 40. You see in, in, in verse 3 of Isaiah 40, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that's, John's voice makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then in verse 4, he says, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. Uh, the, the, um, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And so what, what's going on here is that, is that Isaiah is saying that God is, what is God up to? He is up to removing every single obstacle that is in his way uh, to getting peace to you. And, and the chief obstacle, obviously, is sin. 
Sin is the greatest obstacle. And, and Isaiah is saying that God is going to do everything necessary to remove the biggest obstacle out of his way to be reconciled and to be restored to you and bring you his peace. And his aim, as you look at Isaiah in verse 5, his aim is that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He ends with, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken because he wants to affirm to his people of old as he does to the people in John's day, as he does to you right now, that when God speaks, it's done. When he commands, it stands firm. His word never returns to him empty or void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it and succeeds in the thing for which he has given it. And what his aim is, is that he wants his glory to be revealed and for all flesh to see it. Now, glory is something that we talk about a lot. And glory is seen in the cross. It's seen in all kinds of ways that the heavens declare the glory of God. But here in Isaiah, it, he's talking about in a context of salvation, in a context of restoration, in a context of being reconciled, in a context of being pardoned and sins being put away. The glory is at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where you see the mercy and grace of God, His covenant, steadfast love and faithfulness. You see Him pardoning iniquity, transgression, and sin. And you see Him in no way clearing the guilty. You see Jesus bearing your guilt, taking your shame, and He's not cleared. He's crushed on Calvary. So peace might come to you. The glory of the Lord is revealed. You see the justice of God, the judgment of God, all revealed at Calvary. God said it and it's just as good as done. And now we, in the 21st century, we look back at Calvary and we see it's a done deal. That peace has been uh, given to us. And you see also in Isaiah uh, chapter 40, uh, in verses 6 through 8, um, what, what is it going to take to receive this peace? And we'll find that, that this message is a message that, that, that we, God's people, are called to proclaim to ourselves as well as to the world around us. And we'll see that. You may be wondering, why are we going over this gospel if we're already believers? Well, stay tuned. In chapter 40 of Isaiah, verse 6, it says, A voice cries, what is it going to take to receive this peace? What is it going to take to enjoy this peace? You're a believer. You have received the peace of God. But a lot of times believers don't enjoy that peace of God because there's idolatry, because there's sin, because there's a failure to repent on a daily basis of things wrong in our lives. And so the peace of God, which, which we have with Jesus Christ through faith in Him, we're justified apart from works, but often that peace is clouded over by sin. We don't enjoy it 
because of our sin, because of our idolatry. And so in verse 6 through, through 8 in Isaiah 40, he talks about what it's going to take to, to have that peace and what it's going to take to enjoy that peace. Isaiah 40 verse 6 says, a voice cry, says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is a very interesting and very important passage as all scripture passages are. But here you see twice again it's stated that that all flesh is grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. God is saying twice comfort, comfort, but he's also duplicating our mortality, our weakness, our brokenness. We're broken people. We're vulnerable people. We have sinned against God. And we are transitory, beggarly, weak, impoverished. Those words are not flattering words. They put us in our place. They say your life is a vapor, your grass. And all your beauty, no matter how wonderful you might be, how much time you spend at the gym, how many muscles you might have, how much beauty people might double take it when they look at you, but it's all like a flower. It fades. It disappears. It turns back to dust. Well, that, that glory... Uh, is something that we can't keep. And he repeats himself because he wants people to know in order for us to obtain that peace, we've got to recognize what we really are, what our sins have done to us. If you look over at Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 and 7, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Isaiah 40 verse 6-8 puts us in our place. It says in terms of receiving this peace, we can't rely upon ourselves. There's nothing we can do. We can't look in the mirror and find hope and find peace. Look at what it says at the end of verse, at the, at the middle of verse 7. It says that the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. When we, when we hear the word of God, coming and condemning our sinful behavior, our rebellion and our transgression and our perversions, we're blown away. We wither away. We fade away. But then look at the hope that's given at the end of verse 8. But the word of our God 
will stand forever. And you can't read that phrase, the word of our God will stand forever, and fail to connect it to the end of verse 5 in Isaiah 40. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what's going on here is that Isaiah is seeking to give comfort that there's no hope, there's no peace in ourselves. But there is, there is peace in the promise of God, in the word of God that doesn't fade, that doesn't fall down. It stands fast forever. It's as good as done. And that word from God is a word of a God who is going to remove every obstacle in his path to bringing you peace. It's a word of comfort, comfort. It's a word of tenderness. It's a word of pardon. But it's a word that can't be received and can't be perceived unless you recognize your grasp. You're a flower that fades. And when you so recognize these realities, peace comes chasing you down. The peace of God comes running after you. Can you hear the footsteps coming for you? The footsteps of the Prince of Peace running after you to tackle you with his love. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3 now, you see that John is, is giving the same message that Isaiah was giving with this urgency. John comes on the scene with, with, with camel's hair and a leather belt. He comes like Elijah. Elijah's name means the Lord. He is God in a context where Baal was the rival. Is Baal God or is the Lord God? And we remember that scene on Carmel, how it was proven that the Lord, he is God, and the prophets of Baal were put to shame and put to death. John comes on the scene, John the Baptist, the Elijah-like prophet, the Elijah that was to come. In the spirit of Elijah, he comes and he comes to proclaim this, this peace, and people are coming out to him. And they're coming to confess their sins. They're coming seeking pardon. They're not hiding their sin. What are you doing today? Are you hiding your sin? Or are you coming to God, confessing your sin, laying it out before him, even saying to God, I don't even want to confess this to you because I like to do this. I like to think this way. I like to behave this way, but I know it's wrong. And so here I am to say it's wrong. Your heart may not be fully in it, but you're there. You're there seeking God because he's there seeking you. They were seeking pardon, personal pardon for sin, and they weren't hiding anything. And John was baptizing them. He was baptizing them, a right to uh, cleansing, readying people for the coming king and his coming kingdom. But then there was another group of people who came, and you know the story. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and John called them children of Satan, a brood of vipers. 
And this is and ought to be very humbling for all of us, particularly us who are church leaders, because that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were. They were leaders of the people. And John calls them children of the devil, which is a great embarrassment in that day. But it corresponds to our day and the great need that church leaders have to be prayed for, that they would be repenting, leading in repentance, leading in confession of sin, leading in turning to God, turning away from sin for the express purpose of serving the true and living God and living for Jesus Christ and waiting for him. The Sadducees and Pharisees rested on their laurels. They rested on the fact that they were children of Abraham. They had a, they had a genetic connection. They had the DNA. And John says it doesn't matter, young people. You grew up in a Christian home. You're growing up in a Christian home. Are you resting on the laurels of your parents? Are you trusting in the fact that dad and mom are believers and so I'm, I'm safe? You're not. You're not safe because your parents are going to heaven. That doesn't mean you're going. There's no guarantee. You have to come. You have to confess your sin. You have to own up to your own iniquity. It's not in your DNA. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ. What is in your DNA is sin. And you've got to get right with God personally. John says of the Pharisees and Sadducees who rested on their connection with Abraham, their pedigree, John says, you know, rocks are more redeemable. Rocks have more hope. It's more likely that a rock will get raised up, redeemed, and adopted by God than those who don't recognize their need to repent of sin. Remember the song we used to sing, Ain't No Rock Gonna Cry In My Way, In My Place. As long as I'm alive, I glorify. Don't let a rock make you look bad. God is ready. He's ready, isn't he? That's what it says here in verses, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses, uh, verse 10, and, and again in verse 11 and 12, that God is ready to judge sin. He does every day. The wrath of God is revealed every single day against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who suppress the truth by doing what is unrighteous. They can, they can feel in their conscience the Spirit of God approving certain things and disapproving of certain things, but they do it anyway. And they, so they suppress that revelation from the Spirit of God in their conscience. They suppress the revelation they see all around them everywhere in this world. The heavens declare the glory of God. Only a fool would look at this world and say it's an accident or it just got here by chance. Buy a, buy a model car. It's an illustration for you. Buy a model car, whether it's Mattel or Tamiya, whatever you want to pick. Buy it and take all of the little pieces off of the, the, 
the frame that they comes with it, if you ever put a model car together. Take all the pieces together and, and, and put them all in a bag with some glue and some paint and, and, and shake the bag up every single day for 10 minutes. Just shake it for 10 minutes every single day and, and see how long it takes and make sure the glue's open because you gotta, you gotta use the glue when it's open. Make sure the paint is open too and, 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 and shake it up every single day for 10 minutes and see how long it takes you to actually build the car. So that when you open up the bag and the car is built, perfectly painted, perfectly glued, and everything's together. That's a model car. Do you know how immensely more complex the world is? And yet it just got here by accident, by chance. Yeah, keep believing that. And I mean this with all seriousness. They will be taking you off to a psychiatric ward not too long after. And I mean that not as a joke. But you will drive yourself mad and crazy trying to believe this world got here by chance. God is ready to judge all of the suppressors of the truth in unrighteousness. Those who refuse to admit their sin. Refuse to recognize their sin. And so we find in, in these last verses of this section, we see that... Um, uh, in verses 11, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, Jesus is ready to gather his people. He's ready to condemn those who refuse to recognize their need for repentance. And what makes this so profound, if you look at these final verses that we want to focus on, along with the last passage um, in Isaiah we'll turn to in a minute. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is profound, and you know the story. You know how it goes down. You see early on in Matthew chapter 3, verses 4, that people were coming out and confessing their sins to John. They were owning up to their wrong, and the Pharisees refused to do that. They wanted to trust in Abraham, their father. And then, then John has been preaching about this Messiah. He's been telling us about this king who's coming, and his, his kingdom has drawn near. He's here with us now, and then he comes, and he comes to get baptized by John. John baptizes sinners. John baptizes uh, it re re rebels, transgressors. 
He, he baptized people who are repenting, who are confessing sin. And here comes Jesus. He has no sin. He has no need to repent. He's not a rebel. He's not a transgressor. He's perfect in every way. And so John, he's the prophet. He's the greatest prophet of all, it says, prior to Christ. And he knows the text of Scripture more than anybody at that time. And he, 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 he feels the awkwardness of this moment. What are you doing here? Why are you coming here to me? You should be baptizing me. But here we see the humility of our Savior, the humility of our God, that he would come to a sinner's baptism, that he would come to a, a transgressor's baptism. It's not everything going on in this passage, but, but, but the point here clearly is that Jesus Christ is coming to be numbered with transgressors. He's coming to identify himself with sinners. He's coming to, to, to symbolically uh, uh, represent us as sinners, to bear our guilt. And this obviously looks ahead to Calvary. It looks ahead to his death on the cross where he, is, he, he becomes sin. And, and God pours out his wrath on him and condemns him so that he could pay the debt we owe. And this is why, this is the same humility that's found in passages like Philippians, where, where Jesus Christ, although he was in the form of God, did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped, but took upon himself the form of a servant. And, and having done so, he humbled himself in, 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 in human likeness, and he, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And that's exactly what happens when Jesus receives this baptism. Heaven is opened up to him. The Spirit of God comes down upon him. And the Father speaks up. This is the one, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He exalts him right there in the waters of the Jordan. Heaven is opened. So as you turn back to the background of this passage, and you recognize that when you own up to sin, Jesus is right there. Have you ever felt as a believer and a follower of Jesus, and you sin that sin, that pattern sin, that you, you can't keep stop sinning. It, it seems like it keeps coming up from time to time and, and you feel embarrassed to go back to God. You, you hesitate because you know you know better. Well, well, Isaiah is saying that the obstacle has been removed by Calvary. That Jesus knows you. Jesus loves you. Bring it to Jesus. He recognizes you. Don't let the repetition of sin make you hesitate in your run back to Jesus. Recognize that repentance is something that God wants to work in you deeper. But don't, don't hesitate to come to him. And so you see this need to proclaim this message of salvation to yourself, that Jesus stands in the waters with you as you confess your sin, as it were. Jesus 
he 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 recognizes your sin and he owns it on Calvary. He he become he 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 takes your guilt upon himself, and he he receives the punishment that you deserve. And so there's a need to proclaim this message to yourself, even as you proclaim it to those who do not know the Lord. Look back at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. It says there, it says, go on up. It's one translation, I like the way it says, get yourself up, get on up. Go on up a high mountain. It's a place to broadcast something, to be heard by the largest number of people. And, and who's, who's being told to go up? It says, O Zion. And it calls you. Zion is, 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 is another name for the people of God. It was, a, it was a physical geographical location, but it had in the development of, 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 of Hebrew history developed into a, a name for the people of God themselves, as you'll see in a moment. O Zion, and it, and it says of you, you're a herald of good news. A herald is not timid. A herald is not mealy mouth. A, her a, her a herald does not whisper. A herald shouts. A herald gets on the mountain to be heard. It says, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. And there you have it, O Jerusalem. That famed city that had defamed itself with sin and God is refaming with his blood and with his mercy. You are Jerusalem. The Jerusalem from above. Born from above. And it says of you to you, you're the herald of good news. It says, lift up your voice, lift it up. Again, you see this repetition, O Zion, O Jerusalem, lift it up, lift it up. Your voice, fear not. Fear not, which is, uh, corresponds to with strength. Say to the cities of Judah, Isaiah is being told to preach this message to the people of God even as they would preach it to those who are not his people. And, and the message is, Behold your God. Pilate didn't know what he was saying when he said, Behold the man. And how he was picking up on John the Baptist's language, Behold the Lamb of God. Because he takes away the sin. He takes away the barrier. He takes it away once for all when you're saved. And he takes it away every single day. You deal with sin. You confess your sin. He takes it away. Behold your God. Behold how he did it. How he did it on Calvary. How he humbled himself. How he became a servant. How he became a man. So that he could die the death of deaths. And he could through his resurrection ring the death knell for death itself. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, it says in verse 10, and his arm rules for him. And so it pictures God as a sovereign creator, a sovereign mighty warrior coming against the devil, coming against your sin to put them down. And he cannot be stopped. He's like a strong man who comes out and runs his race and runs his course. Like the sun like the glory of God. 
Nothing can hide from its heat, from its power. And it says in verse 10, Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Now in other passages, this means that he's coming to bring a reward and to bring a recompense. But here, it's speaking of the one who's working, which would be God. And, and the Hebrew word is speaking of a reward, his own reward. And you are his reward. You, his people, are his reward. He comes with you in his bosom gathered together back to him, reconciled back to him. You are God's inheritance. You are his reward. That's the message of peace. That's the message of reconciliation, that you have become friends with God again. Where there was enmity, it's gone. Now there's friendship. Now there's adoption. Now there's reconciliation. Behold, the Lord comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward, you, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And, and this is what he'll do. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. How's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? Well, Jesus said, behold, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. That's how he does it. He lays down his life for you. Jesus. In John chapter 10 verse 15. 14, I'll start at verse 13. It says uh, of, of the wolf. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know him. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. And then in verse 28 of chapter 10 of, of, of John, uh, Jesus says, I give my sheep, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the peace you have. You're in the hands of Jesus, and those hands are nail-pierced hands. They're nail-pierced hands. They demonstrate His love. They've shown His love. He cares tenderly as He gathers His people to Himself. We need a message of peace in a time like this today. We need a shepherd who secures us, who saves us, who sustains us, who shelters us. In times like this. And that's the shepherd that you have. In Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Our peace. Our only peace. As well as our only hope. God bless and keep you.